For Science Friction, Natasha Mitchell here, taking you to your dark side today. Last show, we challenged our selfish selves. This week, we are rethinking your evil self. Can science help us understand the nature of evil and whether it exists in the world and in our psyches? Joining me are University of College London's Dr Julia Shaw. She's a psychologist and author of Making Evil, the science behind humanity's dark side. Clinical psychologist Dr Georgie Fleming from the University of New South Wales. She's developing treatments for children who demonstrate so-called callous unemotional behaviour and traits. And moral philosopher, associate professor Luke Russell is from the University of Sydney. He's author of the book Evil, a philosophical investigation. And we're on stage at the University of New South Wales with the Centre for Ideas. Do you think that we are more preoccupied with evil than ever before? I mean, I'm thinking of Netflix is full of sexual violence. True crime podcasts are everywhere and people are utterly obsessed. Facebook live streamed the New Zealand massacre of the, in the mosque for 17 minutes and it got shared and shared and shared. Are we more obsessed with evil than ever before, Georgie? I'm guilty as charged on this one because those crime podcasts I listen to, the Netflix shows I watch. And I think, yeah, I think it's a matter of accessibility. There's more, there's saturation, oversaturation perhaps. For me, it was always been about trying to understand the whys of how someone could commit such an atrocious act as what you were talking about. Making sense of the world around you. Do Definitely. you Does sense get made when you sit down and watch a, listen to a podcast on some vicious sexual crime? I think that's the, that's the addiction of it, right? That you get little bits and pieces, you get crumbs of understanding and it leaves you wanting more, but you're always left still wondering why and how. Oh, is that understanding or is that voyeurism? I don't know. Julia Shaw, what about you? Why do you think, or do you think, that we're more obsessed than ever before? I don't think that we are more obsessed with evil than we have been before. I mean, we used to have public hangings. I think both in terms of prosecuting and catching the, quote, bad guys or the monsters who we perceive to be in our midst, and in terms of trying to understand why people do terrible things including ourselves, so why we're hypocrites, why we do things that we are ashamed of, why do we do harm to the people we love or the people we don't. And I think that's a deeply rooted part of the human condition is to want to know our dark side. And I think that the, the perception that things are more evil today I think that's largely driven by access to media coverage and the way that news cycles work and, and things that get pushed into your feed. And so you have access now to the, all the world's atrocity in real time, in a way that you've never had before. And that makes it seem like you can never overcome this, this sort of insurgence of, of terrible people and terrible acts. But I don't actually think, I mean, we live in safer times than we basically ever have in terms of humanity and in terms of violence and in terms of even things like murder. I think that strongly speaks against the idea that we're becoming more evil, but that fascination, I think, has always been there. But perhaps the fact that we're perceiving the world to be full of more horror, more of the time, perhaps that's powerful enough 
I mean, it's a burden that people carry. Oh, it's a tremendous burden, and it can lead to apathy. It can lead to uh, feeling like you will that the, the world is a terrible place. It can lead. I think it can contribute to feelings related to depression. Uh, on the other hand, I think we need to never give up and try to consistently ask why. I mean, this is bad, like you were saying. So this, like, why are people doing terrible things? How do we understand them better, and how do we prevent them from happening? And with sort of the positive side, of course, of things like the internet is we also have access to a plethora of information and potential answers in a way that we've never had before. Luke, certainly the religious traditions have been obsessed with evil over millennia. You make the case, a very strong case, for a kind of secular tradition of evil. Do you think we're more obsessed than ever before? I don't know if we're more obsessed than before. If you think back through history, there's lots of fascination with extreme wrongdoings. You think about the Jack the Ripper case, for instance, in Victorian London. I mean, that was a media sensation. Um, if you look at stained glass windows in medieval churches and check out some of the torture and violence that's depicted on those windows, you'll see this is a, a perennial topic in human history. I think there has been a change in the focus on the word evil and the concept of evil. And I think that change was spurred primarily by President George W. Bush responding to the 9-11 terrorist attacks by saying these terrorists are evil, what they've done is evil, and these three nations are an axis of evil. I think that was a real prompt for people to think more carefully about evil. I agree that those actions were wrong. I think they were extremely wrong. But I'm uncomfortable with the judgment that they were evil or that the perpetrators were evil people. Well, what he so created was a sort of geographical landscape. Oh, set aside the evil nations. Mm, I mean, that, that is a, a very much Demarcating whole swathes of populations as evil and others as good somehow. Right. So what, I think what happened um, in, especially in my discipline philosophy after that, is people got interested in the concept of evil and thought, well, hang on, what is the difference between saying what you did was wrong but what you did was evil? What's the difference between saying, you're a pretty nasty person, I don't trust you, but that guy, that guy's evil. What is the difference? So I've written a whole book trying to answer that question. <laughs> but, but in one I sentence. In one, in one sentence. Is, is, it a useful, is it useful to distinguish some people and or their actions as evil? I think it, the concept of evil, a secular moral concept of evil, is a useful concept that has a proper place in contemporary moral thinking. There are philosophers who disagree with me about that. Julia disagrees with me about that as well. I think the difference between a wrong action and an evil action involves the extremity of the wrong and the necessary culpability of the perpetrator. So that's non the harm done, the type of harm, the scale of harm. The scale of the wrong, because I think there can be harmless evil actions, such as failed attempts at suicide bombings. Now, I want to say that is in the category of the morally worst kind of action, even if the bomb doesn't go off and no one's killed. So I think it's an so extremity of wrongness. That is the case where they've got They the, had the thought. And the attempt. So I think the, the concept of evil action marks out extremity of wrongdoing. And then I think the concept of evil person is much more contentious. So I think if you're calling someone an evil person, you're taking a big step up from saying what you did was evil. I think if you're calling someone an evil person, you're saying you have an evil character, not necessarily that you were born evil, but you've come to have a firmly fixed character that strongly disposes you to perform the worst kind of wrongs. 
It's very hard to know whether someone's got that kind of character, and I share some of Julia, Julia's worries, which I'm sure we'll talk about, in relation to you know, overly quick and glib claims that this, this perpetrator's an evil person. I think it's very hard to know, but I think there are some cases where we've got pretty clear evidence that that particular perpetrator is an evil person. And then one has to ask, well, what's the purpose of using that word? To what end? Before I come to you, Georgie, on your work, because some of the kids that you're working with might one day cop a label like evil. So, and that's very, very contentious. Julia, you fundamentally want to rethink evil. In fact, you think the very concept itself might be a little bit evil. I think we should get rid of the word evil in everyday language. I think there might be some, there is some merit, in fact, in talking about what evil might entail philosophically, but typically when we use that in everyday situations, we don't use it philosophically. We're not having a deep philosophical discussion about the concept before we apply the label. For me as a scientist, I'm always, I always want people to ask why. And I think the, the moment the E word comes out is usually the end of the conversation. That's usually when you've, at the very latest, begun to dehumanize someone. And, and I think this is possibly from a practical perspective, the single most important reason why I wrote the book is that when you label someone evil, what you're doing is you're justifying potential future atrocity against those kinds of people. You're saying, I'm different from this person in a fundamental way. Usually, you're on the side of the good, right? Because we all think we're good people. No matter what we've done, because we have the context and nuance, we know why we do the things we do. We don't have that for somebody else. We've labeled them evil. And the problem is that we can justify incredible, incredible harm when we stop seeing humans as humans and we start seeing them as monsters. You want us to have empathy for, to humanize, murderers, people who have committed pedophilic acts, a whole range, a whole range of categories of people. And I'm interested in your motivation I want around to, making that case. Yeah, I, I think we need to humanise every human. And we often forget that, and we often don't. And we, we think that because someone has um, engaged in child sexual abuse, for example, we, we use terrible things to describe them. We think that things like the death penalty are warranted. And we think that, I think, because we, we fail to we're scared, potentially even, of thinking of why that person may have done those terrible kinds of things. And I think instead of saying it's a scary thought and it's terrible and I can't go there because it, basically I might be empathy shamed for even trying to put my mind into the mind of someone who's capable of terrible harm. Instead, I think we should always be trying and looking and breaking it down and saying, but what are the small versions? I mean, pedophilia is a bit different because that's something that, as far as we can tell, you're born with. Now, within pedophilia as well, I would actually end up writing a whole chapter on pedophilia, because, which was not intentional. I sort of almost fell into this whole chapter because there's so much to say. And we are struggling as adults to have meaningful conversations about an incredibly important issue, and we're failing to protect our kids. And so we need science, we need answers, we need better conversations. So you're saying that by labelling something as evil, we fail to engage with it in a way that might change that behaviour? Yeah, we, we almost give it the superhuman aspect. It's unfathomable. It's unfathomable, it's unthinkable, it's unpreventable. And that's the danger. And so I think instead, in the book, in Making Evil, I also try to make it a personal journey for the reader. Because I think if you, you're not going to great depths in terms of sort of what are your, what's your aggressive side? What are the things that you do every day that might indicate that there's some sadism in every brain? What are the things that you contribute to by eating meat, for example, that might contribute to structural problems? But can't it be the case, and I'll, I'll come to Luke later on this, but can't it be the case by giving a particular uh, word to a particularly abhorrent act 
that in fact can be a useful vehicle for understanding that act. Like you actually have to have, there are some categories of behaviour that are fundamentally a transgression in terms of how we relate to each other morally and psychologically and socially as a tribe. You and your tribe, but this is even, this is where also the matter of subjectivity comes in. I mean, I think actually the suicide bombers are a great example. I mean, there's a classic statement of one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. And I think that that does ring true. If you break into every atrocity you can think of, unfortunately what you do find, or, or fortunately if you will, is regular human beings on the other side. And so it might seem like this act or this person is evil, but if you dig enough, I, I think it's a it's impossible to actually find that substantiated if you look and actually go into the reasons. Yes, and you do an amazing unpacking of the ways in which uh, we're all kind of on a spectrum of bad behaviour in different phases of our life. Georgie, you are doing work with children who display particular traits early on. Tell us about the community of kids that you work with and, and why you started doing this work. <laughs> So I have chosen to specialise in research and do clinical work with young children, so preschoolers to early primary school, elementary school age kids who present with conduct problems, so non-compliance, aggression, being really destructive. But then within that kind of broader category, particularly with kids who present with what we call callous and unemotional traits. Diagnostically, this is known as with limited pro-social emotions. And for a child to be diagnosed with callous unemotional traits, they need to be callous showing... Callous unemotional traits. Yeah. So um, it's interesting that you kind of fixate on the use of that term because that was the justification for using the diagnostic specifier of with limited pro-social emotions. Kind of flipped it because of the, the uh, concern that it would be pejorative to label a child callous and unemotional, which Well, it makes could sense. be pejorative. What age are we looking at? So here? we can reliably kind of identify these traits in kids as young as about three. A callous and an emotional presentation is really characterised by a lack of guilt and remorse following misbehaviour, a callous lack of empathy for others' distress, kind of unconcern about your performance in important activities, so in kids at school or in extracurricular activities, and a shallow or deficient emotional expression or experience, so superficiality in how you experience and express emotions. And the reason why I have chosen to focus on this subgroup in particular is because these are the kids who are at greatest risk of going on to have severe, persistent and aggressive antisocial behaviour in adolescence and then in adulthood as well. Could it lead either way? Could it lead you down the path of criminal behaviour? Could it lead you down the path of becoming a CEO and a psychopath? Yeah, the, the so-called the successful psychopath. I think what you're speaking about there are these kind of multiple trajectories of kids who present with conduct problems in childhood, where do they go on to as they grow up? And for this group of children, the longitudinal or the kind of the across time data do suggest that they are at higher risk of these kind of poorer psychosocial outcomes in, in later life. Can you give us some examples of the sorts of things that kids might be doing? I mean, you've sure. kind of described them. Yeah. What are they getting up to that makes you want to put a kid in a very distinct and rather yeah. frightening category so early on in their life? It's a good question. Um, so the types of 
behaviours that parents are particularly concerned with tend to be the callousness with which these kids interact with younger siblings, for example, with peers, with pets. So a child who puts their family cat into a plastic tub and closes the lid. That type of behaviour is quite atypical from your kind of standard or uh, normative development for kids in that age group. That just sounds like kids being kids to me. And there is an argument for that. And I think you're right in terms of Working talking about out. the spectrum. And that's been the difficulty and the challenge of this field is that how do we reliably, validly assess for the presence of these traits? And at what point do we say you've crossed over into having normative levels of these traits into abnormal or clinically significant or clinically meaningful Is it clear to you? Levels. I don't always get it right. I'm not infallible by any means, but I've worked really hard to become very familiar with what I would call behavioural indicators of these traits in these kids. Are these kids that kind of come to you because they've had horrid life experiences mm. and this is their reaction mm. to that scenario. Are, are we talking about, because I do know there's really potent work going on around the genetics of psychopathy and sociopathy sure. and using children as subjects for that work. So yeah. actually looking for a genetic story uh, for those yeah. sorts of behaviours. I mean, we're talking about something that might be innate in some kids. Yeah, so what we know about conduct problems when they occur in the presence of these elevated callous and emotional traits is they tend to be more heritable. Genetics explains more of the, the conduct problems than in a child where these traits are normative or low but still have conduct problems. So there is an argument that the, the, the genetic loading is higher, so to speak. But I think the take-home message is that we've not, there hasn't been any identification of a single gene that increases the likelihood that a child will present with these traits but lots of little effects of many genes that increase yeah, the, the, the heritability. And I think that's incredibly important work and it's useful to talk about and to understand the development. From my position, I'm working in the room clinically, the genetic disposition is less helpful for me in an applied sense because it's not necessarily something I can change or change easily. So then I'm more working with those risk factors that are more amenable to modification. So something like targeting parenting factors, which we originally thought, well, for a long time thought, wasn't as important for these types of kids. Now we're seeing if we focus on other facets of parenting, something like parenting warmth, well, maybe then we can start getting some traction and seeing some change. Oh, that's tricky. With these kids. Yes. Uh, yeah. Generations of mothers were blamed for their children developing schizophrenia, and that was highly problematic Definitely. too. Julia Shaw, you do have concerns, but you do probe in quite a bit of detail the effort to try and develop a science of evil. So a kind of, is there a biological substrate to evil? Can you read evil in the brain, for example? And there are interesting studies to that effect, aren't there? There's so many studies. Georgie, I thought it was fascinating that you managed to talk about callous and emotional traits and didn't once use the P word, psychopath. 
I've I been mean, well trained. <laughs> <laughs> so you were saying, uh, Natasha, that we that callous and emotional sounds like such a difficult label. It's specifically used to avoid terms like psychopath. But most kids with CU traits, callous and emotional traits, don't go on to become psychopaths. And that's really important. And that's really important for a lot of genetic and neuroscientific research, is that there's a lot of correlations, there's a lot of pathways, but the actual relation of like how those genetics and how that the, those brain components actually manifest in behavior, it's, it's really complicated and it just takes into account a lot of social factors, it takes into account a lot of stuff. Well, one of the researchers that you talk about looked at his own brain and That's made a very interesting conclusion from that. Um, so Dr. Fallon was doing research on murderers who are also uh, diagnosed psychopaths and he was trying to differentiate between murder people who were convicted murderers or had been convicted of murder um, and those who were convicted of murder and were psychopaths. And he was going through brain scans, fMRI research, and he was going through and he could reliably tell them quite well apart. So his accuracy was quite high. And so he's going psychopath, not sort of picturing him going through these images, right? Psychopath, not psychopath, 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 not psychopath. He's holding up a brain and he goes, this is clearly the brain of a psychopath. And his research assistant comes over, and I'm, I don't know if this actually happened, but I always picture it this way, comes over and sort of crawls into the room and goes, tap, 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 Dr. Fallon, that's your brain. And it's a story of the scientist who by accident, because obviously when you do research, you have, na you have labels, you don't have names, so you don't necessarily know the name of the participant. And so he, he's, he, he claims that he by accident found out that his brain matched almost exactly the brain of a psychopath. Uh, and then he, he went back and sort of tried to examine himself. So there's actually a saying here, research is me-search. And so some might ask, maybe he knew this all along and that's why he went into psychopathy research. Perhaps. <laughs> Uh, but actually, what he was saying is that, no, it, it shows that just because you have a brain that is predisposed, for example, to be less good at empathy, to be worse at creating empathetic responses to things like suffering, it doesn't mean you are going to harm others. It just makes that barrier lower. And so he called himself a pro-social psychopath. And he said, I might ha indeed have lower empathy, but I don't act in a way that we normally associate with the term psychopath. And, and I think that that's a really important story, is the sort of idea of just because you have the brain that is predisposed to do harm, it doesn't mean you're going to do harm. Well, we are brains in a world and in an environment, and you know, our genes are expressed in ways that are affected by our environment as well. But you do t talk about, in this conversation, about do we demarcate some people as evil and some people as good, and some, you know, we're somewhere all somewhere in between those two categories. You talk about medical monsterisation. Mm -hmm. Now, what, what's your concern there? Medical monsterization is a term I use for, uh, largely actually within criminal psychology for the term psychopath. Because I think that the problem is sometimes we, even as scientists or as clinicians, uh, we come up with these new labels. And there's been lots of labels like this, unfortunately. Uh, but, but psychopath is the label du jour, where we, we're using it to describe someone who we really don't like, a group of people who are akin to sort of these unchangeable monsters. Not always, but sometimes. And the problem is that we, we feel justified in using that term because it's come from a reliable source. But I mean, even Robert Hare, who is the originator of the psychopathy checklist, which is how we still largely classify psychopathy, Robert Hare talks about psychopaths as snakes and as monsters. 
And when I hear language like that, that is decidedly unscientific language. And we should never be describing people like that. And that worries me. Uh, and I hear this kind of language echoed in police investigations. You know, you have a large-scale case where you know that a lot of wrong has happened. But police officers will, before they've even identified, they're sort of, they're monster hunting. They're going out there and they're like, we're going to find these, these horrible people. Or they've got a, a person who's a suspect and they've already made up their mind. And that's not how justice should work. That's not how you should be making your important decisions about how to decide about someone's character. Um, you know, there need to be checks and balances and evidence is a really important component of it. Luke Russell is absolutely champing at the bit to yeah. get into this conversation. <laughs> yeah. and, and what would so, you like to pick up on? A few things to say there. Fallon, that psychologist who diagnosed himself as a psychopath, is not a psychopath. There's a wonderful episode, I think it was from the TV show Insight, he was a guest on that, telling his story. The psychologist Simon Baron-Cohen was another guest, and Baron-Cohen picked him apart. He's in, done a lot of is, amazing work on autism on and empathy. Written, yeah, and said, you're not a psychopath. You, you're a low-empathy individual, but you're clearly not a psychopath. And Fallon effectively said, yeah, it's a good way to sell books, though, to say that I am. Right, so Sounds I think like something a psychopath very, would do. We've got to be very cautious. <laughs> Seems like evidence. We've got to be very cautious in running the argument that, oh, we shouldn't worry so much about psychopaths, they're not so different from the rest of us. Now, I'm absolutely on board with Julia's claims that we should not be using language of monstrosity, and we've got to be very careful with using dehumanising language, like treating people as monsters or vermin. Tons of historical examples and recent examples where those, those um, uses of language have bad effects. Right, but that's quite different to saying, you know what, psychopaths are kind of like you and me, and there was this great psychopath I spoke to the other day who was really lovely. I mean, there are psychopaths, and they, the people who actually are psychopaths are usually very dangerous. And they are mentally different in significant ways from the rest of us. There are commonalities, of course. They are human beings, right? And, but they have different kind of affect or emotional responses to other people. So years ago, I taught philosophy at Long Bay Jail. So I taught inmates there, and there is a clear difference between uh, people who have got those psychopathic tendencies and people who've done terribly wrong things who don't. Right? So I, I would want to say, you know, we should not be dehumanising people, but the judgement that someone has performed an evil action, the worst kind of action for which that person is morally responsible, that's not a dehumanising judgement. That is, you are a human being. You are accountable to your fellow human beings. And you've done something terribly wrong. That's very different to saying, you're just a dangerous animal. So I want to resist the idea that the language of evil is always dehumanising. Now, you can find examples of people who use it in a very dismissive way and use it to justify atrocities against oppressed groups. Absolutely. Does that show that we should drop the concept of evil? Or does that suggest, wow, that's an egregious misuse of the concept of evil? I'd go with the latter. It's, do you want to follow up on that? I just wanted to say that, I, I mean, part of the issue with psychopathy is that it has largely been studied in prison. And obviously, just in general, people who end up in prison are different than people who don't, generally, for lots of reasons, including things like uh, much more likelihood of poverty and lots of uh, you know, structural problems. So, so from the psychopathy researchers who I know, the argument more is that there, actually there's a lot of people who are psychopaths who are not engaging in criminal activity. They might still be doing harm to their loved ones in, in various ways, uh, or to, to people, to society. But sometimes it can be beneficial. So the idea that's also, this is where we get to the subclinical stuff. Mm -hmm. Sort of the range of psychopathic 
characteristics and how high you score. And, and how you define success, so-called right. successful psychopathy yes, as correct. well. Yeah. Um, so so this, the, this is back to that nuance idea. And so probably if you're on the extreme end of the spectrum and you're anti engaging in antisocial behavior to the extent that it's landing you in prison, you're probably a very different kind of person anyway than someone who might have the brain, if you will, of a psychopath or low empathy. I mean, so Baron Cohen has some very hotly debated ideas around empathy as well. But uh, I, I take the point. I'm, I'm not a fan of his stuff on empathy, actually. But, <laughs> but, look, but, Luke, but look, you know, we think about Hannah Arendt, the political philosopher who wrote about the so-called banality of evil, contentious expression. But she came up with it after she watched the trial of Adolf Eichmann, you know, the Nazi perpetrator. And what she saw was a man that seemed all too normal given a sort of a setting, could that induce any of us to commit evil acts? That context, that circumstance, that the triggers matter? Yeah. So this is one of the most famous uses of the word evil. Hannah Arendt watching the trial of Eichmann saying, this is not the monster who I expected. She uses that terminology. This is not the monster who I expected. Um, this is not someone who's driven by malice and anti-Semitism. This is not someone who is, in her phrase, determined to be a villain. And so not someone who thinks, I'm going to do the wrong thing. Watch me. This is a person who Arendt thought was following orders, doing his job, wanting to get promoted, wanting to impress his superiors, and fundamentally, Arendt thought, being thoughtless in his actions. And there are historians, David Cesarani has a great book on this, The Portrait of a Desk Murderer. He thinks Arendt just got Eichmann wrong. And nonetheless, Arendt's view is really insightful. She was wrong about Eichmann, I think, but she was right about the, the fact that there are some people who participate in atrocities and culpably participate in atrocities who are not acting out of malice towards their victims, who are following orders, who are acting out of you know, fear of embarrassment to be the one who steps out, acting so as not to disappoint the other people who are in their group. And there's subsequent work shown that's written by historians investigating atrocities committed in World War II, for instance, that suggests there are people who are like Eichmann's picture of a rent. Eichmann himself wasn't like that. And so I'm totally on board with the idea that some of the people who commit the worst wrongs are psychologically just like the rest of us. I think psychopaths are not. Psychopaths are emotionally a quite in different their own. to other people. But, yeah, so I'm in favour of okay. there being a very broad category. If we're thinking about the psychology of evildoing, it's really broad. And some of the great work that's done by psychologists like Stanley Milgram shows that you can get ordinary people to do really wrong things if you put them in the right social environment. He, you know, had, had ex volunteer experimental subjects the, yeah, pretend to electric shock his subjects. Highly flawed experiment, as, as uh, if you read it a bit more deeply. Julia, in your book, you write really evocatively of, uh, about the way in which... Uh, scientists are studying the way in which we're all bad, actually. You're all bad. And she has the proof. <laughs> and there's a sort of sliding scale of bad behaviours. You know, we have bad thoughts. You want to murder someone at least once a day, you say. <laughs> I didn't say at least once a day. No, so I've had murder fantasies. Yeah, it's murder so fantasies. So have you, by the way, probably. Yeah, yeah. According to science. Uh, so we have bad thoughts. We have uh, a propensity to want to squeeze cute animals. 
<laughs> How are these things related? What is this about? What is this? Uh, yeah, I think it's important to not get too stuck on really extreme examples. So I think an Eichmann or a, a serial killer, I mean, these are often the stories that fascinate us really deeply, but I think really this needs to be the tale of the ordinary person. And it needs to be, the, so I'm half German, and I mean, as a country, I think to say that everybody is capable of great harm, if given the right or wrong circumstances, is a really personal, deeply personal aspect of our history, as it is for Australia, as it is for most countries in the world. There are, there is, atrocity has been committed repeatedly by boring, everyday people who, if you had asked them before committing this atrocity, would you be capable of doing such a thing, would have said, absolutely not. And so I think going in with the assumption that you are capable of every kind of harm is the most prudent. It doesn't mean you're likely to engage in every kind of harm, but I think it's the most prudent way of thinking, and I think it is actually the most interesting. And so for me, I, I, in terms of the, the science behind it, sort of everything from where do our assessments of creepiness, so there's a whole chapter on creepiness and how we judge people and how do we assess whether someone's dangerous to us. Are you creepy? How do you know if you're creepy? It's sort of one of those perennial questions. Do creepy people know they're creepy? I mean, and there can be a lightness in some Looking of this research. Looking at you, audience. Research. <laughs> but there's, there's a lightness in some of this research because it almost seems trivial. It almost seems like these examples I'm picking up are so relatable that, well, they, they don't really touch on evil at all. But I think they do. And I think if you look at small reasons why you are passive-aggressive to loved ones or why you fantasize about throwing a screaming baby out of an airplane window or why you... Some of you are laughing already. Uh-oh. Uh, or why you, again, eat, do things like eat meats or why you troll people online. I mean, there's recent research that shows that about 2% of people self-identify as trolls. And they like the fact that their trolls online. And we know that that kind of online behavior can lead to incredibly devastating real-life consequences. So why do we do these things? And how does that relate to more uh, extreme atrocity? Mm. And, so, and when does a thought become an action? Yeah. And you know, well, there's a really powerful case in the book of a NYPD, you know, police officer who was having dreadful, dreadful thoughts, playing with the ideas online in digital communities, I think, he but ultimately, writing, he got exonerated. Well, yeah, he was writing these very visceral uh, fictional stories in an online community about his wife being uh, tortured and raped and murdered. Um, and, yeah, people showed up at his door saying, you know, basically accusing him of conspiracy. And uh, it, it, was, it was all stories. It was all in his head, and he'd never, he claimed that he'd never ever wanted to act on this. Um, but those dark thoughts, a lot of us have really, really, really dark thoughts, and I think they can really scare us. And I think the question of, should I be worried, is a good one and is a real one. And quite often, you'd be surprised how many other people have these kinds of thoughts, whether it's dark thoughts about things like sex, there's chapters on sex in the book as well. Um, and it's, or- You know, rape fantasies. Yeah. You go into rape fantasies, which is really tricky terrain. Yeah, so why do... But extremely common. Extremely common. So a lot of women, even women who have been raped, fantasize in some way about being raped in a sexual, sort of in a sexual scenario. And that really messes with your head. But it looks like these kinds of things are incredibly common. But so it doesn't mean you want those things to happen. And so that's the sort of, when you start planning or sort of preparing to actually make things turn into real life situations, you should at the very latest at that point be seeking help. So at what stage, Georgie Fleming, are you sitting down with children and working with them therapeutically. How do you climb inside the head of a child that has been 
displaying what you're describing as callous, unemotional acts. You know, they might be torturing the family pet, for mm. example, mm. or doing something vicious to their sibling that's frightening and disturbing. Mm. Mm. Where do you start? So clinically, my biggest tool or my most powerful tool in my toolbox is empathy. So the very thing that we're speaking about is a critical lack in the kids that we're trying to treat or the, the adults that we're trying to treat or separate from the rest of the population is the, the most powerful thing that I need in order to work with them. And I think I really related that to that in Julia's book is kind of how do we empathise with these types of people. And so I have, I work every day to empathise with the experience of a child who, for reasons genetic and environment, don't recognise the signs of other people's distress. And if I, you know, looking at your face and I don't know how to read that you're sad, of course that's not going to act as a preventative for me in future to not come up and punch you in the face. Like that's part of the story. As, as similarly so, if I'm not affected by punishment, if I'm one of these kids who have these CU traits, then again, what's going to stop me in future from transgressing against somebody else? If I'm not scared of punishment, I'm not bothered by the effect of my behavior on somebody else. So then by kind of understanding the story, I think, how did we get here? What's keeping, what's maintaining these sorts of behaviors? that opens up your point of intervention. It's one thing for them, for those kids, to not be affected by the harm that they cause mm. others, so that doesn't provide any kind of social trigger for them to stop mm. behaving in that way. Mm. But then there's the question of agency, you know, a sort of sadistic turn in mm. a child who takes pleasure from causing harm to something else or another being. Mm. So how do you un unpack that? And I'm not sure you can. Because it's, it's not rational sometimes. Well, I think, I mean, behaviour doesn't ex exist in a vacuum. And if you do try and understand the beliefs that underpin behaviour, the behaviours start to make sense. Um, and so for a child who might purposefully, very deliberately hurt somebody else, if the belief underpinning that behaviour is that, well, I'm doing this in order to get some sort of reward, if I'm reward dominant and my blinkers are on and all I want is the outcome of this act. For myself. For myself, because for whatever reason I'm not recognising or caring about the fact that you're distressed, then the behaviour starts to make sense. And again, that's the point at which you can intervene and start developing empathy, but, and at the same time... In the child. No, uh, sorry, for yourself no. when you're kind of interacting In with... In relation to the child. Yeah, yeah. No. But then also from the perspective of remediating the deficits, it also opens up this space of, okay, how can we start building what is missing? So can I break down empathy? What are the basic building blocks of empathy? And can we start upskilling these kids in those basic building blocks? Can I kind of teach them how to reliably recognise the signs of distress on another person's face? But also recognising this individual story, how, what's the carrot? What's the carrot for this kid? How do I reward them for engaging in these more pro-social ways of being and viewing the world? And what is the carrot? If they are never going to have that sense of compassion for another, mm, mm. does it become a kind of material carrot? Is it a bribe? Often. And I think, I mean, and I think bribe is um, 
is quite not a, a, good dirt, way of a dirty it. word. Yeah, yeah. Well, like and with the shame, yeah. like I bribed yeah, them, yeah. and I'm like, no, you just did what you needed to do in order to foster the type of behaviour this child needs in order to function in society, right? So, so often it is a very material, tangible reward. And what we hope is that over time, you pair that tangible reward. I give you a token, I give you a treat with this very loving, this very warm, descriptive praise of you've done such a good job of taking care of your little sister. And pair it with that token, that over time What's that... What's the token? I want to know what these tokens like, are. It's a Lollies. literal token. <laughs> like oh, to, to, like to trade it for other so things. So the way that I would do it was that, yeah, yeah, that we'd have what? a token economy system. So every time you do good listening, every time you uh, go out of your way to be kind to your little brother or little sister or whatever, you get a coin. You get a gold coin. Great quick listening. Money. And so then you do, you trade it in for this very individualized set of rewards and that's how we're capitalizing on this kind of reward dominance, punishment insensitivity. Um, are there some children for whom you feel there's not a path for them. Have you ever felt that? No. No. I felt, I felt, I've worked with, you know, some children where I've definitely thought to myself, you're going to have a tough time in society and society's going to have a tough time with you. But I think that's the point at which we kind of tap out when we go, when we get to the place at which you say there's, there's no more for you. You're a six-year-old and I can't help you. There's, there's always, that speaks to the scientific community and our... If they've managed to get to you, that's well, the, that's, yeah, that's that's the exactly challenge. Right. Yeah. But yeah, but the challenge is then as the scientist practitioner, my treatment clearly isn't working for you. That's on me that I need to work with, you know, my team to develop better ways to, to, to meet your needs. Very centred, person-focused approach. Fascinating. Well, we are right out of time. Let's thank Dr Julia Shaw, Dr Georgie Fleming and Professor Luke Russell. More about our guests and their books on the Science Friction website. Get to it via ABC RN. Email me from there too. Thanks to sound engineers Andre Shabanov and Richard Gervin and to the University of New South Wales Centre for Ideas team. Catch me on Twitter, at Natasha Mitchell. Thanks for your ears. I'll catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>